Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Morning. I definitely have my cup of joe this morning because here in Minnesota, we got snow last night. So it made the commute very interesting and it's a little chilly here. So I got my joe and I'm about halfway through cup number one, a cup th- uh, three, total of three. So, uh, my goodness. I'm, I'm, and what do you got? You got some chai Listen, tea I'm, I'm, I'm in line for a very different reason. I, I'm battling a little bit of the jet lag on that uh, 15-hour flight back from Hong Kong to Toronto. Oh, right, right. Doing yeah, the I'm just trying to keep myself keep myself well caffeinated for the next couple of days. Anyway, yeah. Well, that's good. We we definitely need. I got to go shovel snow when I'm done with this little chat here. So it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Dr. Chip Rout, who I'm sure is well known to almost everybody on the call, except for the youngsters. And Dr. Rout, I believe I'm going to get this right, is a graduate of UT Galveston Medical School. He did a residency at Vanderbilt, and then he went to Harborview, and then he stayed at Harborview for a long time, and he's been at UT Houston for, uh, I'm going to guess, 10 years, Chip. Has it been 10 years already? Almost 11, uh huh? Oh, well, I got my numbers right. But anyway, I asked for uh, Dr. Rout to come on this uh, Ortho Joe discussion because things in pelvic fracture management have changed in a major way in my career. When I was just beginning, we did open reductions of SI joints and we did lots of open surgery with big blood loss. And I think more than anyone else, Dr. Rout is a person who helped the orthopedic community figure out how to do these things percutaneously. And I know it was a it was a tough road at the beginning because, you know, the, the party line was you got to open these things. And there was this argument about opening from the front or opening from the back and what got more infection, this and that. So, Dr. Rout, tell us what drove you to try to figure out how to do it without the conventional way. Well, thanks for having me. And I have my cup of joe as well, but I'm not going to shovel snow here in Texas. But we have a little cold snap. It is 50 degrees. So uh, it was 104 four weeks ago. It's 50 today. So that's great. So we started just because it was easy to identify that things weren't as good as they could be. And then uh, at the time, I was at a really enriched environment of, of learning where it was expected to ad- advance knowledge. So I was in an environment where you know, Dr. Hansen, Ted Hansen had been the advocate for early femoral nailing. And there was this transition of pelvic surgery that was occurring. Uh, they had moved for the spike of cast and the traction phase. They had moved through the external and were still pretty heavy in the external fixation phase. Mm-hmm. Dana Mears was a big advocate of that. And there was the Toronto experience of sacral bars with open reduction, but then there had been Dr. Kellum had published a paper that showed a very high wound complication rate of posterior surgery. And then there was the development of fluoroscopy in the operating room that was following the femoral nailings and intertropes and things like that. So I was sort of in the right place at the right time with the right people, with the right mindset. And then there was a, an active biomechanics lab at our place, and I had a five-year 
timetable or a five-year clock running to make a promotion. So it just sort of made sense. I had mentors uh, like Dr. Hansen and you and other people that were setting the tone of uh, doing innovative things. And the pelvis hadn't been really touched by this stuff. So it just seemed like the right thing to do. And then we had the lab to do uh, experiments in to prove that the things that we were doing not only made sense, but also made biomechanical sense. And then we had a young resident who was extremely motivated to do projects, uh, several new journals that were extremely interested in publishing this new information. And so it just was a perfect time, perfect storm, I guess, is what people would say. If I could ask, I've seen sort of a, a, some of your prior uh, interactions and discussions and podcasts, and they've all been really, really fascinating. But it, it seems that the the two individuals that you always seem to provide a considerable amount of honor to are both Mark Swinkowski and uh, Professor Sig Hansen. Can you speak to the first time you met Mark Swinkowski and how that, I guess, impacted or changed the way you thought about uh, your career? Mark came to Vanderbilt after I had been a resident for three years, and we, we were really, I would say, behind the times on fracture management. Uh, everything was delayed fracture care. And I can remember the very first time I took call with Mark, we had a guy that was rocking a Coca-Cola machine trying to get the change out of it, and it fell on him and broke his femur, and he had an open femur fracture. And we operated on him that night. We took him straight away at two o'clock in the morning. We did an irrigation and debridement of his open femur. We used a, a brand new nail thing called a universal femoral nail. And the guy went home in two days. For the first three years of my residency, that would have been about two to three, four weeks in the hospital, different phases of traction and things like that. This guy went home, I think, three days after the surgery. And to me, that was a, a, a modern miracle. I couldn't believe it. I was completely addicted. Then when I got to finding out where this came from, it, then I learned it came from Dr. Hansen, who had you know, learned it and brought it over. And so I, I would say, you know, that was my first experience with Mark. And it, it completely turned my career around because up to that point, I was going back to my hometown to be a private doctor and just do general orthopedics. And uh, between him and Neil Green uh, doing research and doing teaching, I was addicted to academic medicine pretty quickly. I, it's just something I never thought of. So I would say between Ted Hansen, Mark Sunkowski, Neil Green, and then the resident Peter Simonian, who is now, a, you know, of course, an experienced clinician. But those those four people really uh, turned me on my head and took me to a place I never would have dreamed I, I would go. Yeah, it's great that you had mentioned uh, Neil because the, the audience may not know if they haven't been in a course with you, but one of, uh, well, the most, uh, I think, I guess, you're a person of many gifts, but your 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 greatest gift is your ability to teach one on one, and I think a lot of that you you got from Neil, who uh, we both uh, knew very well. But I want to yeah, yeah, I want to return to the to the the issue of changing the paradigm, and I know because I witnessed a lot of it that there were powers that be, senior <laughs> to you in the academic world, that thought that this kind of stuff was crazy, uh, and uh, this young guy has no credentials and what what's the stuff that he's presenting at meetings that can't be true has to be a liar we still need to open these things and uh use the traditions of uh innovators like Letronel. so what was that experience like as a as a young person really uh with with new concepts well it was terrible because it, it was just a you know the, the taking care of the patients 
and trying to develop, you know, all these different things and learning the fluoroscopy and, you know, there, there were no cannulated screws and, you know, just trying to learn the, the anatomy, the osteology and the fluoroscopic correlation was really hard. And so uh, luckily, you know, I had my wife was a radiologist and my x-ray tech was this very experienced lady named Jane Anava. And so we we could fix these fractures and then you could see, I mean, if you talk to the patients, it was dramatic results. I think it's nowadays, it's all very common knowledge, mm. but it was pretty phenomenal stuff. And then when you go to tell people about it, they just threw it right back at you and, and actually called you a liar. So yeah. it was, I had never dealt with people like this before in my life. I was raised in the country and everybody was pretty respectful of one another. And you know, I'd always been in medical, you know, I just, we didn't treat each other this way. So, but it was terrible. And it, the only thing that really kept me going was I had very supportive environment. I had very supportive, uh, you know, colleagues. And then the most important thing was just, I listened to the patients rather than to the so-called experts. <laughs> And uh, I appreciate that they were expert in whatever it was that they knew, but what I was learning, they had no experience with. And so they, they weren't expert at what I was talking about. So I just paid attention to the patients and uh, that really was all you needed to do, you know? Yeah, Mo, if I could, just one more and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. In your recollection, how long did it last before, when, when did the pendulum swing? It hasn't uh, stopped. How long did it take? It hasn't stopped. I mean, people are still arguing about, like, the patient I'm about to operate on is a patient I'm not sure people would operate on. Uh, uh, she's an elder with an unstable pelvis, and I think they would just ignore it. And so it's still going on. But I, I would say probably when people found out there was funding and financial reward in fixing pelvic fractures uh, would probably be the motivation for most clinicians. They found out they could get paid for it, and so they became interested in it. And then it's just like anything else. You know, money seems to be the reward that most people go after. The good news is, is in this situation, it helps patients. Wow. So I, I would just say when when the codes, when there started being codes for percutaneous fixation of the pelvis, that's probably when people got interested. It was, I would say, 2006 or so. It was, it was a tough 20 years, you know, 10 to 20 years getting to that point. Probably when, probably when the really long screws, you know, up until 2006, we only had 130 millimeter cannulated screws, and that made for some real problems. And then after 2006, we got up to 180. And I think once we had those, that's when people started to convert because uh, they could see the benefit of, you know, the longer, stronger fixation. Good. But it's pro it was, I mean, to answer your question, it was probably just money. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to follow up with that question, Chip. But I wonder if we could just go back in time because I, I know there's going to be a, a lot of a lot of trainees who who don't really, quite frankly, understand the importance of the work you did. And so, you know, you're you're hooked on trauma. You're hooked on on this idea of percutaneous fixation. You head over. I'm guessing sometime would it be late '80s, uh, like what, when you would have head over to Seattle, and you um, and you. There was it roughly around there, and then and then I guess it would have been the chair at that time, Sig Hansen, who would have, in many ways, sort of no, was it not? Okay, so can you maybe speak to what happened, like like how you got really, in some ways, directed into this area of academics and research um, after your residency training? You know, Mark was a great role model, and then I I went to Seattle to do a fellowship with them, and it just it, this was a very enriched environment. And then just to be very candid, there was a five-year gun at your head to publish this. You know, you had to publish a certain amount of papers as first author. 
And then you had to publish another certain amount of papers as co-author. And if you didn't, you got fired. And I saw some pretty well-known people who had gone through this grinder before me and they had been canned. Now, they hadn't necessarily been fired, but they left the job after before five years in order to get away from being released. So I knew there was an academic gun to my head and I had never experienced that before. So, it, I mean, if you ask me where the real stress came from, it wasn't developing stuff or learning fluoroscopy. None of that stuff was the hard part. The hard part was just getting the publications done in time. And luckily, you know, Dr. Frederick Matson was, Rick Matson was the chairman uh, okay. of the department and Mark was the chief of trauma at Harborview. And then Dr. Hansen was our senior faculty who sort of set the standard. But you know, I, I was there with Brad Henley and Paul Anderson and Steve Banershka. It, it was just a re really enriched environment to where everyone was expected to produce and innovate and do things that hadn't been done. It was an environment of excellence, you know, at the time. And this is this is actually quite fascinating to me, and I'm sure to a lot of of you know of our of our members and and listeners who are who are hearing this because. I think there's a lot of folks who come out and say, you know what, I'm being really driven and I wouldn't say push, but, you know, driven into some of these metrics around, you know, uh, developing an academic program very early. It's very stressful. Chip, do you feel that that early stress, you know, that this part around this, 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 this pressure cooker of academics helped you in the end? Or do you feel that if you hadn't had it, things would have been very different? I would have failed if I hadn't had it. There's no way. It was incredibly motivating. I can still remember walking by Mark in the hallways, you know, at uh, eight o'clock at night or something like that. And I'd be exhausted. And he'd look at me and he'd make this little like, he would make like someone writing and he would say, you know, go, it was, it was just, he wouldn't say a word. He would just go and we'd like, go do your writing or you're going to get canned. I, you know, you have to add Alan Tensor and Rich Harrington to that, that list as well, because yeah. they were in the lab and they provided the lab. And then you have to add Phil Spiegel. He was the editor of the JOT and Dr. Spiegel had a brand new peer reviewed journal and he wanted articles and he loved this research. So, um, you know, he came up to me at the first Academy I presented and he just said, I, I, I want your stuff, you know? I, and so I, I had a, an editor who wanted my stuff and shoot, man. I mean, that was like, that was like a gift from God, you know? So it, it sounds like the journal of orthopedic trauma was an early, uh, partner to you in actually helping us because it's it's really hard what you did. I mean, I don't know if again uh, people understand just how difficult it is to spend two decades building something that you're passionate about, something you know works, and then trying to, in many ways, convince a whole you know just just a whole uh, area of specialty that you know that that this is the way that we should be thinking about helping these, these patients. You know, other than a few other colleagues, the specialty was very, very reluctant to learn this. And Dr. Spiegel was, a, I, you know, my opinion, he's a brilliant guy because he, he said, well, this is new and this is different and it looks like it works. And so let, let me help you. And uh, I mean, those are basically his words. I would even send him combo articles of like clinical and biomechanical put together in a paper. And he would say, no, 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 this is two. You know, you have to split these. And uh, to me, that was like, Oh, thank you. You know, yes, two publications instead of one. Thank you so much. So this was driving me. I knew there was a terminal event. If I didn't succeed, I knew I would have to. And then, you know, this had an impact on my wife as well, because she was working for the University of Washington. And so if I failed, we were, you know, glub, 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 we were going down together. And I just, I just didn't want that to happen. And luckily, 
you know, the people around me didn't want it to happen. You know, my, my partners let me take call essentially every night and cert, you know, like they, they allowed me to take care of the pelvic and acetabular trauma and femoral heads that came in when they were on call. And so that gave me also a real huge exposure clinically. We were covering four or five states as the only level one at that time. And so, you know, the, I was getting more clinical exposure to doing these things because my partners were supporting me to do that. You know, uh, that made a huge difference. It, it limited my travel, but it uh, really gave me an incredible clinical exposure. You know, I, I, I couldn't drink and stuff like that. Uh, so, but that was fine. You know, we, we didn't do that. We just, uh, you, it's really, it's a special time, just pretty much being on call all the time. That, that was a special event. Yeah, well, it, just for the audience's sake, Dr. Rout doesn't like to travel anyway, so it, it was correct. A, it, it, it wasn't Perfect. a big deal. But I, I just wanted uh, the audience to hear what it was like for somebody that really did change the paradigm. Now, you said earlier in the interview that it's still going on. I think what's going on is the indications, but what's not going on is the techniques uh, that you developed for placing iliosacral screws and ramus screws and all of that. I think that is accepted as the standard of care and the audience wouldn't know that you're responsible, uh, but you are. So uh, I just wanted everybody to hear that. Uh, and for spending your time and delaying your case, I know you got to go to surgery. You are going to be receiving one of these absolutely priceless already. travel mugs. Okay, you got I'm it already? already. So I've already got explain, it. Already had, let me just explain. It has a little thing on the top that you can slide over. And when you're in your truck driving around your ranch on bumpy dirt roads, the coffee won't spill in your truck. Uh, I've noticed so that already. I appreciate heading, that. You might be heading out to shoot or, or take down a, a javelina or something. And <laughs> it's a feature that you're going to want to use. So I Chip, want you to uh, know I used it this weekend and I did exactly what you just said. And it works great. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm working. I'm working on getting the pastures less bumpy because the hogs are what make the pastures bumpy. And so we're <laughs> we're working on rooting out that evil doer. <laughs> well, all the best with that, and uh, have a great case. And thanks so much for spending the morning with Mo and I. We greatly appreciate it. Thank much you appreciate. Much. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. See you, Chip. Bye.